you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Well, glad to be with you guys. And uh, we are three weeks in now on this uh, series, this six-week series called We Are Family. Week one, we talked about um, what family looks like. It's a family that has genuine love, that is loving. Last week, we talked about a family that is warm, that idea of brotherly affection. And today, we're going to talk about devotion. As a family, we are marked also by devotion. But let me begin with this question. When you think of a king or you think of a ruler or whoever it is, you often have to think, okay, do the people of that king look like that king? Or think about any world ruler. Let me try to make this more clear. You can often look at the people and that you see a people who reflect their king. You see a kingdom that reflects maybe that sort of personality, whether they be a tyrant or peaceful or loving, you definitely have kind of this mentality as the king goes, so goes the people. In the Old Testament, there was a time when the people of Israel wanted a king. They were fine as is. They were truly a theocratic people operating under God, no human ruler. But they were convinced at some point in time We need to be governed. We need to have a king, just like all the other nations have a king. And so Samuel the prophet in this time was aware of their error in thinking, approached the Lord in this matter saying, hey, look, this isn't right. But God said, allow them to do this. Allow them to raise up a king. And God would allow this. He would allow Israel to then form themselves in a way that looked like the world, yet they would be distinct in some ways. He would allow for a king, and what we would see is, in the establishment of these human, non-divine kings, you would have sinful, broken, and sometimes just outright wicked kings. And yet, all the while, that God that they served remains faithful, true to his word, showing himself always to be the better king. Needless to say, throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel looked like their kings, the kings of their time. When the kings were wicked, the people were wicked. When the kings would repent, the people would repent. And ultimately, as we know, following their kings in some of these wicked ways led to their destruction and captivity. Jesus is king. Jesus has a kingdom. Jesus is not interested in reestablishing a kingdom like what was done in Old Testament Israel when Old Testament Israel wanted a kingdom that reflected a kingdom like the rest of the world. Jesus is, however, showing himself as a greater king of a kingdom that is unlike any kingdom this world can offer. And the people of this kingdom of his will look like this king. This kingdom is reflected in the church. And her king is Jesus. 
The king in the kingdom not only has power and authority, but it has an ethos. That is a cultural way of being. Just as the Old Testament Israel had this ethos based on their king and kingdom, so those who have saving faith in Jesus, that is his church, have an ethos based on their king and his kingdom. There's an ethos to the church that all of us are tempted with. Kind of like Old Testament Israel. We want something that the world has to offer. Many in our own city in Springfield, I'm not speaking exclusively of Redeemer, I'm speaking in generalities. But the church often buys into this industrial commercialism. That is a church that is a manufacturing church in this free market that allows the church to franchise like Burger King, giving people what they really want, having Jesus their way. And we try to make church Jesus and his kingdom, something extra. About 10 years ago, I had a job where one of my bosses, I remember her, she may not have been five feet tall, dressed professionally, always wore slippers, which was kind of funny. And she'd always look at me and she'd go, Greg, you're doing too much. (laughs) She always told me I was doing too much. And that's what this is. We're doing too much as the church. We're trying to give all these extras, add all these extras, as though that is what is going to enhance the kingdom of God. When Jesus invades the human heart and makes his people come alive, they come alive to him and come alive to his kingdom. And they begin to be a people doing rather ordinary things. They begin to love. They begin to treat one another and all with warmth. And they begin to orient their entire lives around devotion. And I use this word ordinary because our culture is tempted that everything about the king and the kingdom is supernaturally extraordinary. And therefore, we must somehow manufacture something extra. We must somehow produce and experience some, some sort of wow factor every time we come together as the body. And if it's not there, then God is not moving. But what we're seeing here with the church is something ordinary. Granted, you have the Holy Spirit, something extraordinary, something supernatural, But the people aren't trying to manufacture anything. They're doing ordinary things which result in extraordinary results, if you will. And so today in this passage, we'll see the word devote. In the Greek, it is shown as devote and attending. So in verse 42 and verse 46 are both the same word. The word devote and the word attending. And so devotion in Scripture has the basic meaning to persist in. To persist in. Persistence is a continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Continuance in a course of action despite opposition or difficulty. And so what we have here is the church of Jesus called to be genuinely loving people, that is, not hypocritical, Without pretense, we genuinely love people and we are especially warm 
towards our brothers and sisters in the faith while we are persisting in the worship of Jesus and service to one another, even though it could either be difficult or opposed by the world. In other words, what God is calling us to be is not going to be easy because it is his kingdom, his life amidst a fallen world. You must be devoted as he is devoted. And this is not something conjured up in human power or exertion. This is something fueled and powered only by the Holy Spirit. And so what we see today is an ordinary, costly, devoted life unto King Jesus and his kingdom. An ordinary, costly, devoted life unto King Jesus and his kingdom. So I had us read the verses leading up to verses 42 through 47. 42 through 47 is really I want to hone in, but to give a little bit of a bigger picture, we had the reading go to the verses prior. And so leading up to this point of the church coming together, you have Jesus in chapter 1, after he spent about 40 days or so, after the resurrection, hanging out, making himself known to many people, talking with the disciples, he ascends to the Father. And shortly after he ascends, the disciples replace Judas Iscariot, who killed himself. He was one of the disciples. They were shorter disciples, so they replaced him with Matthias. And after this, the Jews and all the surrounding nations who had come in for the festivals, for the Passover, for all these feasts, are now here celebrating the day of Pentecost. And in this time, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Jews. And God saves the Jews, opens the eyes of thousands of them almost immediately to see Jesus as the Christ, as the fulfillment of of the Old Testament. And so what happens is these Jews, many of them are coming to faith and many of them are standing around going, what is going on? Peter addresses the crowd. He delivers a spirit empowered sermon, just perfectly exegeting the Old Testament text and prophecies, specifically in Joel chapter 2 and Psalm 110, showing and expounding upon how Christ is the one who was to come, how Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. And so these Jewish men have witnessed a miracle. They, it's undeniable what has happened before them. They can't explain it away. The spirit literally fell. They could see it as tongues of fire over these men. And Peter explains, this is what we've been looking for out of Joel chapter 2, that God would pour out his spirit upon all men. You're seeing it. Peter further explains that Jesus is the one who does the pouring in verse 33. And the only way Jesus could have done that is if Jesus was, A, still alive, and B, sitting at the right hand of God. These men have found themselves in a peculiar position. They cannot deny the reality that a month and a half earlier, Jesus was tried and killed in the city during the Passover. 
They cannot deny that there was a buzz around the city that Jesus was alive and visiting people. They cannot deny that they were both seeing and hearing in front of them the fall of the Holy Spirit. And now they must ask themselves, will we give our life to this Lord or will we give our life to holding up his feet? What do you mean? Verse 34 says, citing Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When it says the Lord, it's saying the Yahweh, Yahweh said to David's Lord, that is Jesus. So Yahweh says to David's Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand. David is having this supernatural, divine, just kind of like fly on the wall experience where he's watching the divine work. He's watching God speak to Jesus saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David is a type of the one to come. He is king, but there would be one after him whose throne would be forever. And so now these Jews hearing, seeing and now hearing the gospel proclaimed to them have two, two options. One, they either come unto this king and worship him. Or two, they become his enemy and a a footstool for him. Conviction is setting in. And this is why it says they were cut to the heart. Everything that they were believing and longing for in the scripture has unraveled before them in the city of Jerusalem. And so they, in response to Peter, they don't say, they don't buck up and they don't fight up against him. They don't, they don't press him. Men who are sound in their theology, sound in understanding the scriptures, they go, well, what, what shall we do then? They didn't know what to do. They'd, they had, in their own minds, missed the Messiah they were looking for. That's because they were missing the scripture and how it was supposed to be understood. And so Peter knew what they needed. And so he responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they do. Their lives change. But they don't go off by smoke machine. They don't go off and, you know, do all sorts of fancy things and try to create a a big following and they just do something ordinary. They come together in verse 42 and they devoted themselves. This is they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, very ordinary things, things they were already doing, but now would be different because it's marked with the gospel of Jesus. And so I want us to see these devotions first in the apostles teaching in the word life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to his word. Life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to his word. When it says that the church came together in verse 42, devoting themselves to the apostles teaching, what we are understanding is that they're devoting themselves to their words Their words would ultimately be 
what we have in our hands, which is the Bible, the New Testament especially. But they are clinging to the teachings of the apostles, which is not contradictory to the Old Testament. Rather, it is a fulfillment of that Old Testament. And that's what Peter is doing. He's saying the Bible that you and I believe in, Jewish brothers, has come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. He's the one that we've been looking for all along. And when you look through the the New Testament teachings of the apostles, you could kind of summarize it down to several categories. One scholar put, put it into these categories. These apostolic teachings, they're teaching about salvation. They're teaching about the person and work of Jesus. They're teaching about the commands of Christ and how to live as a Christian. And they're teaching about the message of the kingdom. They're teaching what it means to be saved by faith in Christ. They're teaching about what Jesus had to do in the flesh in order to pay for the sins of humanity. They're teaching about his work on the cross, not our works. He's showing us, the apostles show us, we can't save ourselves, but only God can. And the apostles are teaching the commands of Christ, which is the very great commission of Jesus. How they are going to bear witness from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. By telling everybody, by discipling people, the commands of Jesus. And of course, telling, teaching one another the message of the kingdom of God. And as a result, verse 43, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. F.F. Bruce says, the conviction of sin that followed Peter's preaching was no momentary panic, but filled the people with a lasting sense of awe. God was at work among them. They were witnessing the dawn of a new age. Everything they had been learning and knowing and practicing from the Old Testament was right before them. Jaw-dropping. Truly awesome. And these wonders and signs through the apostles, they in of themselves are not the end, but a means to communicating and showing Christ in His kingdom. The gospel. So accompanying the preaching of God's word would be those signs before their eyes. The Holy Spirit is the one who is acting. This is called the book of Acts, talking about the acts of the church. And really, it is the acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. He's doing it. He's the one acting through the apostles. He's the one giving the power to do these wonders, to do these signs for the apostles to actually preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And it is the spirit that is saving men, that is changing hearts. It is not the apostles. And so when that spirit fell, they were filled with awe and wonder. What is devotion to the word of God or to the Bible look like for a church family under the king. Now I'm talking more about, I'm not talking so much about your personal family or personal daily devotions. 
between you and the Lord. I hope that happens. And I don't ever want you to feel condemned if you mess up with it, because you will. We all do. But I'm talking about something more. I think our devotion to the word needs to have a broader view, a broader scope. It looks like devotion for the sake of the church. One principle I was taught, actually, while I was getting my master's in seminary, was, Greg, don't just take notes in your theology class for the sake of you growing in your own intellectual knowledge and understanding of things, but take notes as though you're going to take those notes back to the church and teach people. Like, oh, that actually changes everything. Because I'm not taking notes to pass a test. I'm not taking notes to make myself look smarter and better. I'm taking notes so that it would benefit the church. And I would say that is what the apostles are doing. They're not teaching the word. They're not doing these things for the benefit of themselves, but for the sake and the benefit of the church. And that's why you see in the New Testament, these letters, it's for the sake of the church. And you and I, all of us spirit-filled believers have a responsibility in the same way. No, we're not apostles. No, we're not prophets in that sense. But we are all spirit-filled disciples who have the word of God and have a responsibility to not only feed our own souls, but to feed our own souls in a way that we can turn and feed one another. So when you are reading your word, the word and praying and considering what God is doing, Is the church coming to mind? Are you thinking how you can wash her over? How you can encourage her? How you can build her up? When the body is suffering, like we saw, we were praying for one of our families driving to St. Louis because a nephew was shot. How are you thinking about God's word in light of their situation? How can you bring to them that salve for their weary, hurting soul. That's how we need to think. That's how we continue to be devoted. The kingdom is not just about me and you. It's about us. And it's about him. So we need to consider serving one another in that way. And I want to also challenge you. Many of you are doing this, and so this is no sort of like you're not doing it, but we all have a responsibility to continue to study, to continue to meditate, to continue to read God's word, to grow in understanding what is our salvation, who is Jesus and what has he done, to understanding the kingdom of God, to understanding his commands, to really not being satisfied with, well, I'll just never know and then move on. No. Struggle with it. Wrestle with it. Fight to know. Be eager to know. If you don't know how to get the answers, ask somebody. But there should be this hunger, this desire inside of us because one thing I do know is that Scripture calls all of us to be responsible for making disciples of all nations. That is all ethno-linguistic groups of the world, people groups of the world, all people of the world. And that requires that we understand his commands and know his word so that we can go and tell it to them and teach them. 
So continue. Your Bible reading is not just for you, but it's for the kingdom. It's for the church, for his people. Secondly, life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to fellowship. Life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to fellowship. When I said that word, some of y'all just got hungry. It's like Pavlov's law. Like when you hear the bell, you know it's dinner time. Like for Baptists, when you hear fellowship, you're like, "Mm, mashed potatoes. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but fellowship means really partnership and commitment to God and to one another, which could include mashed potatoes. Okay. But fellowship is partnership and commitment to God and one another. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And so how do we see this sort of commitment to God and one another expressed in these verses? I believe we see this in 44 and 45 as well. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any any had need. This is partnership and commitment to God and one another. These believers had all things in common. It's an interesting phrase, interesting statement. Because if you remember what I said, literally Jews from all over the known world have come into Jerusalem for these festivals, these feasts. All of them at least speak Greek, but for sure have their own native tongue back to wherever they're from. You have to remember in the Old Testament that when the Israelites, when the Jews were taken into captivity, they were scattered throughout the known world. And for generations, they became accustomed to other languages and other cultures and so forth. Yet at the same time, many of them still had their Judaic beliefs. And so they would constantly come into the city. And if you noticed in the book of Psalms, you have a section of Psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent. Those Psalms would be recited annually as they pilgrimage into Jerusalem, as they are ascending to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is technically elevated higher. That's why it's called a psalm of ascent. And they would recite these psalms as praise and worship on their way to Jerusalem. And even some would recite them in Jerusalem as they're making their way up the temple stairs in worship. So you had a mixed bag of people. Imagine if we had churches, okay, in this auditorium from all over the globe, every single continent represented, every single, you know, main tongue on those continents represented in this room. And we said, we have everything in common. But what is that? It is our commitment to God, our commitment to the gospel, being saved by faith in Christ, having the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We may not be able to understand what the other person is saying, but we understand what the other person is saying, that it is all for Christ. This is what brought them together. Whatever tensions there may have been or oddities or whatever it is that may have kind of kept them away from one another, now they can't seem to go away from one another. It's like a magnet drawing them in devoted to this fellowship, now having all things in common. And now they operate under a new economy. 
one of deep commitment to one another, just as their king was and is deeply committed to them. Now the church is coming together, selling possessions, selling their belongings, distributing those proceeds to any who had need, fulfilling needs within the church, within the body, within the family. Look, this isn't something new under the sun. This is why in some ways it's ordinary. You go back to the Old Testament, this is exactly what the people of Israel did. If you were to read in the book of Exodus, Exodus 35, you see Israel bringing their possessions together. You understand, they had um, taken possession from the Egyptians. God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians, and now they have everything. And as they come into the wilderness, God wants them to build a tabernacle. And so he tells them to give up what they now have as possession. And it says in Exodus thirty-five twenty-one, And Israel came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution. In fact, they were so stirred, they were so devoted to this, that Moses said in Exodus 36, 5, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do. He told them to stop giving because it was too much. That was the sort of devotion. They pulled these resources together to build the Ark of the Covenant, to build the tabernacle, to build this portable sanctuary of worship. And by the time you get to Exodus 40, what happens? The Spirit falls and covers that tabernacle. The use and contribution of resources here in Acts 2 is a renewed perspective of giving. The New Testament church is not giving because they are constructing a temple or a place for God to dwell, for them to worship. Rather, they are giving as an act of worship in response to God's dwelling among them. It's almost in reverse. Old Testament, they were building for God to dwell. New Testament, God dwells. And now they are giving in response to his dwelling. And so the New Testament church is now the living temple of God. The place in which God's spirit now resides. And a spirit-filled life under this king and his kingdom is one that commits all things to one another for the sake of not only loving each other, but for the ongoing work of proclaiming the gospel of the resurrected Jesus. Church, partnership to God is partnership to one another or fellowship. Just like we don't read the Bible for our, our own selves only, but for the, with the church in mind, so we fellowship for the sake of the church, being able to remain committed to one another and to the king's work. We're not just a really nice social movement or organization that helps each other out. There's purpose and meaning to us devoting ourselves and fellowship in this way. All that we have is not ours. We have in the hallway, one of our biblical values, it's stewardship. Stewardship in its basic definition is managing something that is not even yours, but has been given to you. Our money, 
our spouse, our children, our homes, our relationships, our food, everything is not ours, but God's. And we have been called to steward all of those things for his glory and the good of the church. I should bit my tongue. At Redeemer, we have never in our history missed budget, nor in our history have we ever had anyone whose needs have not been able to be met. It has been insane some of the things that have been accomplished and given and received within this body. And so I'm really thankful for that. And I want to continue to say thank you for how you are devoted to one another and to the Lord. I want to thank you for how you do give up yourselves. You do give up your finances. You do give up your time. You do give up these things for the sake of the body. And so I want us to continue to think in a couple ways. How can I be an instrument of fellowship for the body? How could I be an instrument of fellowship for the body? And, and what, is, what is it that perhaps maybe I'm lacking and need help with? Sometimes this is the hardest thing. As Americans in general, we love to give. We love to become prosperous and wealthy on our own terms, like in our own grit, in our own, in our own labor, and then we want to give to other people. We don't, we have a really hard time asking for things. But the church didn't have any problem asking for things. If you're having a problem asking, that's generally rooted in pride. So I want you to consider, because God has brought you into a kingdom, into a church, that you don't have it all. You don't have it all figured out. You don't have everything you need. The body does have something to provide for you. And I want you to just consider, you have something to provide, and the body has something to provide for you. And don't hesitate to make that need known. Whether it's monetary or spiritual or otherwise, make it known. And simply trust the Lord enough to lean on his family for that help. And third, life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to breaking of bread. Life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to breaking of bread. This idea of breaking of bread, I say, is really simply meals eaten with the gospel of Jesus in mind. Meals eaten with the gospel of Jesus in mind. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Okay? Some believe this, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong, that this breaking of bread is a remembrance of the Lord's Supper, something that we do every single week. And I think there's an element of that for sure, because later on in the book of Acts, Paul um, Make sure on the Lord's day, he, he actually breaks bread with the church. That is, in that time, he was doing the Lord's Supper with them. And I would even say that in this time, the breaking of bread wasn't just like little crackers and a little bit of juice, but it was actually a meal that they did with one another. 
So there is the reality of, as the church, they're coming together, breaking bread, remembering what Jesus has done. But I would also say, it's more than that, because this church was being the church, not just on Sundays, but regularly, day by day, seven days a week, doing these things with one another, and breaking bread in homes. And so breaking bread here can be seen as a wider expression of spiritual activities. A wider expression of spiritual activities. A combination of both what we would do in observance together as the body gathered on Sunday as the Lord's Supper, but also just a weekly rhythm, daily rhythm of eating with one another in a worshipful way. You kind of see this in 46 and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day, the apostles and the people, they were attending the temple. The temple was not destroyed yet in 70 AD. They were going there, not still practicing the old same Old Testament religion and rituals, if you will, and practices, but now going in celebrating, worshiping, praising God for what he has done through Christ Jesus. And they were breaking bread in homes and they were receiving this food with gladness and generosity. Gladness speaks of extreme joy, extreme joy. We are with, we are not going hungry. We are here together. We have all things in common. We are devoted to one another. And this idea of generosity speaks of humility. Nobody's going in entitled of anyone's bread or anyone's dinner table, but gladly receiving and humbly receiving what each other has to give. And nobody, nobody's being stingy. Everybody's giving their all. And it is wonderful. And so the believers receive food with extreme joy and humility. And 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was operating in such a way in the kingdom that their worship of him was not only received and praised to him, but it spilled over in their actions towards all the people. They found favor with all the people, not just the church, but all surrounding. That is towards the lost and the saved, really any human of which they interacted. The church was a benefit to the surrounding community. And day by day, the Lord added to their number, those being saved. And so this means that among the many spiritual activities that they were having with one another that they were committed to, that they were devoted to their breaking of bread together was also increasing, which means more homes would have to open up to the breaking of bread. As people continue to come to the table, continue to come in, the proceeds would increase. The needs would increase. The distribution would increase. The food would increase, but that's the swelling of the kingdom of God. You see through the church. We break bread as disciples in the kingdom, not because we just want to eat food, because 
Food is one of many ways the king displays his generosity, his kindness, his provision, his gospel to all of us in the community. How inviting and warm it is to come sit at a table with food that has been prepared for you. How inviting and disarming it is to have a conversation over a meal, an intimate relational conversation. Is the breaking of bread in your own home one that is reserved only for you and your family? Or do you also have in mind the wider church family? Eating is pretty significant in the Bible. Eating and drinking is what God designed us to do in the garden. And it was wrong eating that led to the fall of humanity. But throughout the Bible, you see these beautiful uh, pictures and showcases of feasting. Feasting and, and celebrations where God's divine blessing was upon his people. And so throughout the entire Bible, you have these glimpses of this very hospitable God. Even in the temple, in the tabernacle, you had a table set and you had showbread that was warm every week. It was constantly replaced fresh. This idea of this God who's hospitable to his people. And ultimately for us as believers, we are looking forward to the day where we will be with our King Jesus. And what will we be doing? Feasting with him. Dining with him. This king is so powerful and mighty. We, he doesn't ever have to allow us in his presence. And yet he will invite us in closely. And not only with him, but with one another. And we will be joyful. There will be gladness, extreme joy. And so our eating serves a much bigger purpose. Yeah, it does remind us of Jesus dying and being broken for us. It does remind us of his blood being spilt out for us. And it continued to remind us of that every single day. And I'll say this. Jesus dined with sinners. He dined with the lost. And so I want to encourage us to continue to dine with the lost. To invite those people that we may want to kind of stiff arm and bring them to the table. Honor them. Serve them. Ask them about who they are. What they do. What they believe. And begin to build this into your rhythms. Monthly or weekly rhythms. Of getting to know people. Getting to know the community. I, I hope that Redeemer becomes a type of people or continues to be a type of people. That it's hospitality, it's breaking a bread with one another, is something that is being seen even by the outside world. And they are just curious and want to know, or maybe even just kind of eager to want to be invited in. But I'll say this as well. Our city is a little different in that it is full of even cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity, I would say, is... Lost. <laughs> but what has happened is, is that in our culture, breaking bread is usually reserved for the fellowship hall at the building. 
It's usually reserved for those places and those spaces. And so we actually have a hard time in our city of even inviting fellow believers into our own homes. It becomes almost kind of taboo. It's strange. And so I want us to encourage not only to engage the lost or even the culturally Christian lost, but even our brothers and sisters across the city, inviting them into our homes. You know, members from Hill City Church, members from the 180 church that we prayed for the, uh, the other day, members from the other partner churches that we have, Boulevard, The Way, get to know one another, invite one another into each other's homes, and let's begin to build and cultivate this ethos of what the church is to be as far as devotion within our city, devotion to the breaking of bread. And show this world, show the lost that we actually have something that is uniquely different and good. And last, life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to prayer. Life unto the king is ordinary, costly devotion to prayer. Really, prayer is this idea of communion and talking with God. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. It says the prayers... There's Jewish models of prayer. But now they're taking these Jewish models and the content of these prayers are now being enriched with Christ and the gospel. And Acts chapter 2 shows us that these folks were already people of prayer. As I mentioned, the Psalms of Ascent coming into Jerusalem. But there is a really cool picture of this church praying if you were to jump a couple chapters ahead to Acts chapter 4. After there was some persecution, the church responded in prayer. And I won't read the fullness of it, but it's Acts 4, 23 through 31. And it shows us how the church was devoted in prayer together. They prayed in one voice. They prayed together in unity and harmony. They acknowledged their God as creator of all. Their prayers were saturated in God's word as it pointed to Jesus. They were also aware in their prayers that God was allowing, predestining, it says, predestining and allowing the Jew and the Gentile leadership and authorities, the governing authorities of the time, to do what they did so that his plan of salvation would work out the way that it did. So that Jesus would die. So that the church would have to deal with this opposition and continue to go like wildfire. <laughs> and so they, they prayed for this, understanding that God was doing something that was far beyond their ability to even try to control. And they then collectively prayed with understanding that the mission of the king and his kingdom would continue to move forward, would persistently move forward despite the opposition, despite the difficulty. A church, this church is praying because they know that it requires the work of God, the spirit of God to do these things. And as they were praying, they were filled with the spirit. They were filled with all boldness and their prayers didn't just leave them there on their knees, but led them to action. And what was that action? Speaking the word of God. Preaching, proclaiming the word of God. 
And so church, are our prayers our prayers or are they your prayers only? I hope you get this. The idea of devotion is not just for the sake of myself individual, but for the sake of us, the church. And so are our prayers, prayers that have the church in mind, not only as we're praying, but when we're praying, are we wanting or desiring to even be with the church in our prayers? Do we use prayer as a unified form of praise to God, as a means to seek the power of God, to continually, to boldly proclaim the good news? Or are we relying on our own intellect? Are we relying on our own, you know, just mind and knowledge, our own relational skills and habits? Or are we actually relying on the work of the Holy Spirit in these things? It's kind of funny as reformed people, we don't believe our theology at times. Our theology tells us that God is sovereign. And many times we don't act like he is. And one of the ways that we don't act like he is, is that we don't tend to go to him in prayer. We need to actually believe that he is the one who must do something. That he's the one who's acting and moving. He's the one who opens the eyes of the blind. He's the one who softens hardened hearts. He's the one who's going to do all the things that we hope and long for in our city. It's not us. And so we must go to him. And this is why, and I thank you, Seth, wherever you went, where did Seth go? He's probably just surviving in the back somewhere. But I thank Seth for how he has organized, helped us organize the flow of our service on Sunday morning in prayer. That's intentional. That's not just a religious kind of movement through things. That's intentionally focused on coming to the Lord in prayer. Coming to, as the body, and praying for one another, but also praying for the church throughout the city. This is something that we know we need. We need God. We need him. And so we want to commune alongside one another. Because we have a common king and a common kingdom. I had mentioned that people tend to look like their king. The kingdom of a king is reflective of the king himself. Are we a people that looks like our king? I would say yes. I would say we need to continue to abound and grow and not be satisfied with where we are. But we need to do that in our devotion to him and to one another to persist in it when it's uncomfortable, when somebody says something that's just so frustrating or aggravating, when we're sitting here questioning, I don't know if I need to be among these people. That's the same thing you say in your own household with your spouse, but you don't just leave your spouse. I hope not, but you press in. That's what it means to be family. You press in and you suffer There's difficulty. There's opposition. I don't like the way they sing. I don't like the way he preaches. I don't like the way they do this or do that. Okay, great. You also don't like the fact that your husband leaves the toilet seat up. But you don't just leave them, right? You got to press into these things. You got to work together. Put the toilet seat down eventually. 
That's what it means to be the people. We continue to labor in this together. And I hope that none of us are a people who are under the feet of Jesus. (laughs) That's to be his enemy. As a people under Jesus, when our city looks at us, what do they see? What do you want them to see? Are you even dreaming about that? What would be descriptive of Redeemer? This passage is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not saying you have to do this or else. It's descriptive of what was going on. What would be descriptive of Redeemer if someone were to jot it down? Is it one that looks like what we see here? Or is it one that looks like Burger King? Having Jesus our own way. And as we continue to seek opportunities to share the gospel, plant churches, revitalize churches, replant churches, send folks out to unreached people groups of the world, we have to ask, what is it that we are going to reproduce? What is it we're going to reproduce? The king and his kingdom is a kingdom for the ages, for all time, for all locations, under all forms of government, under all forms of opposition and persecution, for all languages, nations, tribes, tongues. And in all of those comes the same ethos of the church, a church that is unto Jesus as king, living out his kingdom in loving, warm devotion to one another and to all. So let us be a church devoted to God and to one another by way of the word, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, seeking nothing more than being ordinary while serving an extraordinary God so that the world might see and behold Jesus.